I'm going to ask you to turn with me to a, a, one of the more prominent passages in the Bible in relation to Christmas, and that would be Matthew chapter number 2. Let me say that uh, next weekend on Christmas Eve at 5 p.m., and then on Christmas Day, Sunday, uh, at 10 a.m., we'll be having two identical services. So Christmas Eve and Christmas Day are two identical services. We provided them that way so that you can uh, work them around your family's traditions but not have to leave church on uh, out of your family's worship and uh, routines of your holiday. If you have relatives coming in, please bring them to be a part of one of those amazing experiences. It's going to be a classic Christmas. We're going to sing some of the more traditional carols and hymns and and that relate to Christmas, and we're going to take communion together, and um, it will be a kind of an abbreviated service on those nights, but it will be a very meaningful service uh, for you to have your family a part of, and, and make it a part of your family tradition to be with us this, this next weekend for Christmas weekend. Now, Matthew chapter 2 tells us a story. I'm just going to read the first eight verses, but this is my, uh, I hope that you look at the Christmas story this morning in a way you've never seen it before. Because my fear is, those of us that have been churched especially, uh, we've heard the Christmas story so many times, we put the lenses on, we read the story, we never see anything different. And my hope this morning is that you see something unique. And that it has an impact on your life you didn't anticipate it having. Matthew chapter 2, verse number 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go worship Him also. As a part of our sinful nature, we all possess a certain degree of a really bad disease, something that I call comparisonitis. And it seems that at Christmas and this holiday time, that disease or that infection moves to the forefront of our lives more than any other time of the year. Some of the Christmas comparisons. You know, and each week I've been teaching, tis the season something. Tis the season to be jolly. Tis the season to connect. And this week it's tis the season to compare. Because we have all of these comparisons at Christmas. And maybe your family's not like ours. But if you have multiple children, I'm sure this has been the case at least some point in your life. My wife told me some days ago, you need to get the kids out of here because I've got to lay all the gifts out and find out if they're even. Because on Christmas Day, they have to be even. Because we compare. And it's not just the kids comparing gifts to make sure they're equal. Our families compare too. Did you spend equal time at this house that you did at this house? Well, you went to theirs at Thanksgiving. Are you coming to ours at Christmas? You spent seven days over here. You're going to spend seven days with us. 
There's all of the comparison that goes on. We compare food and dishes and hers is better than yours. And we compare houses and decorations and the lights on people's homes. We compare the parties and the decor. It's comparison, comparison, comparison. But let's use the ability that we have to compare this Christmas season in a positive way and take the lives of two different kings that are so, for, so much in the forefront of the Christmas story and let's look at those lives and how those kings compare to us. There's a first king in the story that has a really prominent role. He literally tried to kill Christmas and the word had not even been invented yet. He was worse than the Grinch or the Scrooge combined. It's a strange and a very bizarre story that doesn't sound right in the middle of all the carols and the bright lights and the poinsettias this morning. Our sanctuary is decorated beautifully. I'm sure your home is decorated. Our kids are out of school. There's an energy in the air because we're just days away from Christmas Eve and Christmas and New Year's and new beginnings. And there's all of this upbeat environment. And so we're so far removed from this one king who's in the center of the Christmas story that tried to destroy the whole thing. And this one is not a make-believe character. He's for real. And he really hated Christmas. He's the man that history calls Herod the Great. His story is told biblically in Matthew chapter 2, but there's a lot about Herod the Great we know from history that's not even recorded in the Bible. He was born into a politically well-connected family, and he as a man was destined to grow up and be a man who lived a life of hardball and power brokering. At 25 years of age, he was named the governor of Galilee, which is a very high position for such a young man. The Romans were hoping that Herod would be able to control the Jews who lived in that area because Rome controlled most of the known world at that time. And they appointed puppet leaders from Jewish descent to control the Jewish people. In 40 BC, the Roman Senate named Herod the king of the Jews. And if you don't sense an impending clash coming, there's an irony in the fact that Rome named him King of the Jews. It was just the title uh, that, that eventually causes the clash. But the Jews hated giving Herod that title. It was the Romans that gave it to him. Because Herod even offended the Jews, even though he was a Jew. He offended the Jews because he was... Uh, Very irreligious. He did not honor their religious traditions and festivities. Herod was the embodiment of the ultimate villain. And there were some characteristics that were a part of Herod's life. He was, number one, preoccupied with power. Herod was addicted to power. Power has been described as the ultimate human obsession. And if Herod... if, if If um, power was compared to an alcoholic beverage, Herod would have been intoxicated on the floor drunk because of his search for power. The Bible links power more often than not to sin. If power is defined as the ability to control resources in order to secure one's own destiny, then Herod was the poster child for modern day power. His life and his use of power can be summed up in three words. He was capable... He was crafty and he was cruel. Herod was extremely capable in what he was asked to do. He was a gifted political leader. 
Soon after he became king, he wiped out several bands of guerrillas who were uh, threatening the, the, the area. He made uh, diplomatic peace treaties with some other rogue terrorist type individuals and brought peace to the area through subtle diplomacy. And he was so good at what he did, had he been alive today, he would have been looked at by world leaders as one man who might even be able to bring peace to the Middle East. In addition to being capable... Herod was really crafty. He arranged all of his relationships with the intention of gaining more power. Nobody was just a friend to Herod. Everybody was a pawn on Herod's chessboard so that eventually that relationship would be a door that would lead him to even greater power. It was one thing he could never get enough of. And his craftiness had no bearers. Because he was, had a morbid distrust of anyone that aspired to take his throne, he was also known as a very cruel man. He held tightly to the reins of power, and he brutally removed anyone that got in his way or threatened his leadership. Over the years, he killed many people, and he was ruthless in his murders. He even murdered his own brother-in-law, his own mother-in-law, two of his own sons, and one of his wives in order to protect his control and leadership you see above everything else Herod the Great was a cruel killer that was his nature he murdered for spite he killed to stay in power and human life meant nothing to him at all the great historian Josephus called Herod barbaric another writer dubbed him the Malvelet maniac I've heard it said that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely And that statement could have been written to define the historical figure that is in the Christmas story, Herod the Great. He was preoccupied with power. But he was also preoccupied with possessions. You see, Herod wanted it all. He wanted everything that even the Roman Caesar had, even though he was subject to the Roman Caesar. With the knack of a Donald Trump and a real estate mogul of his day, he built seven palaces and seven theaters. One of the theaters seated 9,500 people. And he even built stadiums. One of the stadiums that he built seated for sporting events seated 300,000 spectators. He constructed a new temple for the Jews. History knows Herod the Great as an architectural masterpiece, a builder, a genius when it comes to those kinds of things. He also had a preoccupation with prestige. He loved to make an impression on others. It's the reason he built so many things so extravagantly. There were amenities in those buildings that that were amazing. He was a smooth talker and had a special ability to win over his opponent. So he would often build these amazing edifices and he would name them after someone in order to gain influence with them. Several of his ten marriages were prestige-oriented marriages and they were politically motivated. He married them to gain influence with another kingdom or another leader. He once married the daughter of his leading rival in order to gain influence with her family. He was preoccupied with prestige, but he also was preoccupied with a paranoia. You see, ever since he was a child, Herod's father, who was a king as well, had been poisoned in his soup. And Herod had this insecurity on the inside of him that someone could poison him. And he would lose his kingdom. He would lose his power. He would lose his prestige. He would lose his possessions. So inside of all of that, there was a paranoia to keep his power. Everybody was a threat to him. And he was an insecure leader. 
So he built 10, he commissioned thousands of slaves to build 10 emergency fortresses for him that were stocked to the, to the gills. They were just filled with emergency provisions uh, and they were guarded. In addition, he established a network of spies that would, that would be an ancient version of the CIA. And they were undercover and they were f- spread throughout the kingdom. And any hint or whisper of anyone who wanted to overthrow Herod's rule were immediately taken out they were killed they were destroyed he ruled for more than 40 years until he clashed with another king one who history would call the king of the jews as well now that's a background but i want to fast forward to the final months of herod's life herod the great king of the jews is now dying with disease His body is racked with convulsions. His skin is covered with open sores. He's rapidly losing his mind, but he's still the king. And then word gets to him that some visitors have come through looking for another king. They have traveled from the east. These were strange men. And they came to Herod with a really strange question. For our purposes this morning, we're going to boil it down to the fact they, they had an interview with Herod. And in that interview, according to Matthew chapter 2, verse number 2, they asked Herod a question that drove his insecurity to the brink of insanity. They asked him, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? You see, Herod wasn't born king of the Jews. He was made king of the Jews by the Romans. But here is one they're looking for who was born king of the Jews. And if there's ever been anybody that's a threat to his rulership, it has to be this man. They said, we saw a star in the east and we've come to worship him. They were looking for someone who was greater than Herod. He had to fight to kill and gain his title. Herod did. But now here's one who was simply born into that title. Matthew 2, 3 says that when Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. The word disturbed literally means in this instance to shake violently. And all of Jerusalem shook violently with him. He had finally subdued his enemies. He had killed all his foes. He was ready to die triumphantly. And now these strangers come with a strange question and he cannot rest. One more person to kill. A young boy who claims to be king. And it's no wonder the Bible says that all of Jerusalem was disturbed with him or shaken with him because no one knew what this power-crazed lunatic would do next when the greatest threat to his empire is now introduced into his life. Now even though he's old, you have to remember that you define Herod as a man who was capable, crafty, and cruel. He knew that somewhere in the ancient oracles there was a prediction of the exact place where the Messiah or special one of God was supposed to be born. So he called together all the ministers and the, 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 the leaders in the law and the, the priest of the people of the Israel and he began to ask them the question, doesn't the scripture say the exact place of where this anointed one, this coming king is supposed to be born? And they reply to him and Matthew chapter 2, verse 4, 5, and 6, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law and asked them where the Messiah was to be born, in Bethlehem, in Judah, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written, But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
You have to imagine Herod in his insecurity had to wince and be full of rage when he heard the word ruler who would shepherd the nation of Israel. That was his job according to Rome. And yet there was one who was claiming the title of the one prophesied here he would be ruler of the nation of Israel. Maybe these strangers were on to something and what if they were really looking for the boy, the one the Bible had predicted. So motivated by self-preservation, Herod determines to hunt him down and kill the child. So Herod called the Magi secretly back to him. He found from them the exact time the star had appeared to them and he sent them to Bethlehem and on their way out the door he said, go and make a careful search for the child and as soon as you find him, report back to me so that I too can go worship him. You don't have to have a great degree of intelligence to see the irony that is in that statement. And so off the Magi went. The star that had led them over 800 miles to Herod now miraculously reappeared in the sky and led them to the exact place where Jesus was staying. When they found Jesus, they bowed and worshipped Him, offering Him very expensive gifts. The mysterious men from the east knew something that Herod would never know. The little boy in a humble manger would someday rule the world. And because of that, they were not ashamed to offer Him gifts fit for a king. Just before the wise men step off the center stage of the Christmas drama and ride off into the twilight of history, we're told one last fact about them in verse 12 of Matthew 2. It says, Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Herod realized quickly that he had been tricked. And this this reality that he had been deceived and the insecurity plunges him into the worst evil he has ever known and he becomes the butcher of Bethlehem. Remember, he is the bloodthirsty killer by nature and all the worst instincts of a lifetime of cruelty are now coming to the surface in his life. Keep this in mind. Because the only way you can understand what happens next as you read the totality of the Christmas story is to understand how far Herod had plunged in his evil. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the wise man, he was furious. And the the, the same spirit, I believe, that possessed Herod, uh, or the same spirit that possessed Hitler, the same spirit that possessed Stalin, the same spirit that possessed some modern-day massacres like Hussein or Gaddafi, others that we are more aware of. It's what I would call the spirit that is antichrist, that is completely opposite of everything God stands for, possessed Herod at this moment, and he began to act like that. He ordered the cold-blooded murder of every male in the region under two years of age. He wasn't sure exactly how old the child was. And just to make sure he didn't miss this one threat to his kingdom, his insecurity, his hunger for power, his hunger for prestige, his hunger for possessions, and his drivenness by paranoia and insecurity caused him to shed the blood of every child in the region under the age of two years in an attempt to kill Jesus. Rarely in history has a battle between two different kings been so dismally lopsided in one man's favor. Herod was the capable, crafty, cruel dictator filled with power, possessions, prestige, and paranoia. He was armed with firepower. He had resources and armies and the wealth of a nation at his disposal. And his enemy 
a baby, wrapped in swaddling clothes, being cradled by his mother, lying in a feed trough fit for animals. It's a paradox. It's an oxymoron. I mean, there has been no other time in history that two kings who were on opposite end of the spectrums would ever cross paths. But to say they would cross paths is a huge understatement. They didn't just cross paths. This was a collision. A fundamental law of physics is that the force of impact depends on the speed at which the objects travel and the the direction in which they are moving. A head-on collision at high rates of speed has a higher degree of impact than a side swipe at lower speeds. Speed and direction in a law of physics determines the degree of impact. Herod was on one end of the spectrum. Jesus was on the other end of the spectrum. And they both were moving fast from completely opposite direction to one place. Who really was king of the Jews? King Herod represented the popular perspective of power. Get it, keep it, use it. But King Jesus had a more simple, radical philosophy. Use power to serve others. Real life, meaningful life, is not in titles, but servants' towels. And these two philosophies were on a collision in history for who literally was going to be the king of the Jews and ultimately for Christ, the king of the world. It's no wonder the two kings clashed. They both possessed immense power. But how they chose to use that power revealed the hearts of the two and how radically different they really were. One was a tyrant, the other was a servant. One was consumed with self-interest, the other was focused on pleasing God and serving people. One manipulated and slandered and deceived and coerced, the other healed and touched and taught and loved. Herod the Great was perhaps the greatest oxymoron in history. He was rich in what most of us consider to be important, and yet he was totally bankrupt as a human being. He was addicted to power, obsessed with possessions, focused on prestige, and filled with paranoia. But in order to fully understand the opposite paths of Herod and Jesus, you have to take a look at the end of the story. You see, Herod, with all of his wealth and power, came to ruin. In the final year of his life, his body was infected with disease, and the pain was so bad that he was said to have screamed throughout the night, Jesus after an opposite life of poverty and lowly position, descended to even a lower position, his body was fastened to a rugged, rough-hewn cross, fit for a thief, a liar, a murderer. His cries, just like Herod's, pierced the night. His cries were cries of love and mercy. By completely yielding his power, he died. But there was a critical difference. Herod could not save himself from death. Jesus could have, but he chose not to because of love. In life, not just death, but in life, Jesus willingly suffered. He suffered from the hands of abusive religious leaders, from their ignorance, from their hard-heartedness, from the rejection of many people, the constant threats to his life, from the betrayal of his friends, beatings and death on our behalf, all for the single purpose to demonstrate God's outrageous love. 
While Herod, on the other hand, was wielding his power like a sword. The power of hate, self-protection, forming armies, building fortresses, and killing at will. While he was doing that, Jesus was yielded, surrendered, broken. The only sword that he wielded was the humble sword of the power of love. Extremely different. Let's be honest with something. If we were to take a hard look this morning inside our own hearts, you and I, and ask ourselves some really hard questions today. I think the Holy Spirit could take the Christmas story and this comparison thing we've got going on and actually use it for some good this morning. We could take a story to see something we haven't seen since we were a child and realize there's probably more of Herod in us than we would comfortably admit. If we'll look in the mirror and let the Holy Spirit convict our lives... We're going to see little Herods looking back at us. Given the right situation, every one of us in this room is capable of working a little of Herod's magic, especially if it helps us get what we want. He comes out when I would rather rule than serve, when I would rather control than surrender, when I focus on what I own or what I want to get more than what I want to give away. When I'd rather be honored than look for ways to honor others. When I see others as a threat to my life rather than seeing them as people who matter to God. Those are the moments in my life when Herod begins to surface. I don't think there's any more powerful way to process what the Holy Spirit's doing in our life or to apply the Scriptures to our hearts than to ask some really pointed questions. And I want us to ask them in our own hearts today. I'm not looking for verbal answers. I want us to each make an answer in our own hearts. I want us to examine our own lives. So let me ask you some of these questions. And may the Holy Spirit keep you from just religiously, out of habit, answering them in a way that makes you feel good. May the Holy Spirit help you answer them honestly. Which king is ruling your life right now? Are you infected with the virus of self-promotion and craftiness this Christmas? Do you think more about yourself than others? Do you crave power and the adrenaline rush that comes from controlling your resources and controlling the people around you? Are you more afraid of what others may do to you instead of thinking about how you might serve them? If so, the influence of Herod may be sitting behind the control board of your life. You know the things that were in Herod's life? We talked about power, possessions, prestige, and paranoia. Let me ask some really pointed questions directed to each of those subjects. Power. How important is it for you to have control? Possessions. How important are the things that you own? Do you own the things that you own? Or do the things that you own own you? Prestige. How important is status? and position or title to your life. Let me ask it in a very practical way. When you do something that you think deserves recognition and people don't notice, does it bother you that they don't notice? Did you do it to get noticed or did you do it to serve? If you did something that you think deserves recognition and you don't get the recognition, then it says that your motivation, whether you want to admit it or not, may have been driven by title or prestige or position or status more than a genuine desire to serve. Paranoia. Are you threatened by other people? 
In other words, to be real simple, are you insecure? Which king are you following? Herod the king and Jesus the king still clash today. In fact, they compete with each other for the control of our lives on a daily basis. Jesus is the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God. King Herod is the embodiment of the Spirit of the Antichrist, the Spirit of this age. And every day in our own life, there's a war going on inside us of the world and the Spirit, the flesh and the Spirit of God. There is this crash in our culture of the Spirit of Herod and the Spirit of Christ. Which one is gaining the greatest control in your life? I hear people all the time say, well, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not really a Christ follower. I'm a religious person. I'm a very spiritual person, but I'm not really a Christ follower. I really don't serve anybody. I don't worship anyone or anything. I'm just a Christ follower. Bob Dylan is probably not the deepest theologian in the world, but even he in his songwriting said, you got to serve somebody. You're either following along the path of the spirit of this age, the spirit of Antichrist, or you're walking in the path of Christ. I wish there was more gray. I wish there was a little easier way to to make some excuses. But when you look at Scripture and you find the teaching, things are a little more black and white than we want to make them. There's the spirit of Christ and there's the spirit of Antichrist. And there's really no in-between there. It's either Herod's spirit or Christ's spirit. And we have to decide which one of those spirits is having the greatest influence in our life today. Herod stated at the end of that story that he wanted to go and worship Jesus. I made reference to the irony of that statement because he made the statement that he wanted to worship Him when he really wanted to kill Him. It strikes me that Herod was in no no way interested in bowing in reverence to the king. And I can tell you the Herod that's in me and the Herod that's in you is in no way ready to surrender our power. It's in no way ready to surrender our prestige. It's in no way ready to surrender our possessions because there's a little Herod's insecurity inside of every one of us. And while many people go through the religious routines and they'll attend candlelight services all over America in the next few days, going through the motions, there's more of a Herod in any of us than we would want to admit. We acknowledge the desire to worship we say we want to worship but on the inside of us we have no intentions of ever bowing our power our pride our possessions our prestige we have no intentions of ever giving it away to a baby in a manger do we lip service desire to worship the king like Herod only to meet our own needs are we just going through the motions Let me give you a couple practical things before I close this morning that will help you root the Herod off of the throne of your heart. Number one, surrender. Surrender is a big word that's hard to explain. I'm 37 years old. I came to faith in Christ at 16 and for 21 years of my life I've been trying to figure out what surrender looks like. And every time I think I've got it down and I come to a new place of surrender, He shows me another picture in Scripture or somebody else's life that makes my surrender look childish. And every day, He's trying to reveal to me a new level of surrender. So whether you've served God for 40 years or whether you've never known Christ and you're going through the motions this year and you sense the Holy Spirit drawing you to a new relationship or a deeper relationship with Jesus, the way to unseat the part of Herod from the throne of our hearts is to surrender. Complete surrender to Christ is rebellion against Herod's rule in our lives. It is a coup against our sinful nature. 
When you surrender your entire life to Christ, you drive a stake into the heart of Herod's influence. Power loses its grip when we humbly defer to the King of Kings. Possessions are not ours when we understand we're only stewards of God's trust. And even though the bank may have conferred title to us, real title of any possession in this world does not belong to us. It all belongs to God. We're merely managers of what He's entrusted. Prestige has no pull when we're living a surrendered life to please God and paranoia flies out the window because if God is for us... Who can be against us? Herod refused to take a five-mile trip to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, to worship the king of Christmas. He refused to let his power kneel at the feet of a real king. He refused to give his possessions at the feet of a real king. He refused to lay his prestige at the feet of a real king. He would not take a five-mile journey to worship the real king of Christmas. I'm asking you to do what he didn't do. If you don't know Jesus, take a few steps this morning. Let somebody pray with you in this altar today. I don't have to know your story, whether you've never known Christ or you've wandered from your relationship. This Christmas is the greatest time in the year for you to surrender your life to Christ and allow him to unseat Herod from your heart. Maybe you're a believer and you've kind of gotten cold or lukewarm in your walk from God. Today, no other season in history, you have seven days to walk up to the birth of our Savior and experience Christmas in a real and meaningful way. It's time to unseat power and pride and possessions and selfishness from our heart and let the real King of Kings take His rightful place on the throne of our hearts. And lastly, surrender. But lastly, serve somebody. Humble yourself. Many years after Jesus was born, he taught his followers an important lesson on how they could honor him. In one of the most riveting, hard-hitting passages in all of Scripture, Jesus said in Matthew 25, 40, Whatever you did for one of the least of these, you've done it unto me. And I know some of us acted yesterday, and many of you partnered with the outreaches of this church in the last few weeks and done some things to the least of these. But you want to unseat Herod from your heart? Surrender to the real king and then go serve somebody who can't pay you back. Jesus called them widows and orphans and prisoners. Go to a retirement center in the next seven days. Visit a prison. Give give, give to somebody who cannot pay you back. Give of yourself in a way. Lay your pride, your possessions, your titles, all the things in you that desire recognition in a way that nobody knows it's happening, that nobody will ever notice to somebody who will never pay you back. Surrender to Christ and serve somebody. Humble yourself. It will unseat Herod. And it will lay a gift at the feet of... When you do it to them, you're like the Magi laying gifts at the feet of Jesus when you do it unto the least of these. Surrender and serve and unseat Herod from the throne of your heart. I want our team that's going to help me uh, to come and prepare our hearts and music this morning. I really want you to think this morning as I ask you a series of questions. Which king are you serving? And obviously, I would dare say if we took a survey and we were just to give a flippant answer this morning, we're all serving Jesus. And that's probably true for the predominant majority of us. But if we were to get below the surface of our religiosity, there's more of Herod in any of us than we would like to admit. And may the Holy Spirit make this real enough to us that we can start a coup against the spirit of Antichrist that tries to take control of our life every day. 
May we have a strong self-assessment this Christmas. And may we come to a new place of surrender. For many of you, I signed books. And I didn't mean to be repetitive, but it was the message of my heart when I wrote the book, Extravagant, that we walked through the last several weeks. May this book lead you to a new place of surrender. I wrote it again and again and again. If we can learn to surrender, even as seasoned saints, it pulls Herod off the throne and places Jesus. Herod will even tell you, let me share the throne, but God's not going to share the throne with anybody. We got we to gotta start a coup. Whether you're a seasoned saint or you've never met Jesus Christ, today is a wonderful day to you to come in relationship with the King. Surrender. And then find a way to make what He's done for you real in the lives of other people by serving somebody who can never pay it back. I want you to stand with me, if you will, all over this place. And prayer team, would you come and position yourselves here and make yourselves available to pray with people? Can I just say this? I I believe with my heart there is a, a great opportunity at Christmas for miracles to happen. Christmas is a season of miracles. If I had a need in my life today where I needed the miraculous intervention of the hand of God, I wouldn't want to get out of this building without having somebody come into agreement with me that God would change that situation. These people are here to pray with you for a Christmas miracle in your finances. Christmas miracle in your family and honestly I want you to continue to pray I told you this last week if you have family members that don't know Christ my heart is convinced because of what God spoke to my heart I shared with you that after we come back from the Christmas break we're going to have a story out of this church and I hope more than one of somebody's family member who comes to Christ if we'll let the Holy Spirit use us that testimony will be real and I just pray that you would already, if you want somebody to pray with you over that person or those people today, come into agreement with them today. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning, or you're a child of God who's wandered from Him, you've wandered, your heart is cold, your relationship with God, is prayer life is empty, it's, it's not what it's supposed to be. I want to challenge you this morning. Many people are coming to these people for prayer for many reasons. Would you take a moment in this service come to these people and just say, would you pray with me? I don't know Christ. Would you help me? Would you pray with me? My relationship with God's grown really cold. Would you pray with me that there's a new fire that is kindled in my heart? Would you pray that Herod is overthrown in my life and that Jesus takes full control of the reins of my heart? I'm going to pray a blessing over you this morning and in just a moment there'll be a lot of people headed out the building and going to their cars and about their day. So while I pray this blessing, if you need to be at this altar for one reason or another, would you step out from the balcony and the floor while I pray this blessing so you can get here before people walk out of the building? Father, I pray in the strong name of Jesus Christ that you'll do something powerful in this altar today. I pray, God, that you would unseat. I pray you'll unseat Herod from my heart, the spirit of Antichrist, that in the next seven days that I could experience Christmas for what it really is because I'm influenced by the King, the real King, not the self-proclaimed King. Today, God, I pray that you would work Christmas miracles in this altar as we pray together in faith. Lord, would you give these families traveling mercies as they go to and from over the next couple weeks? Would you crown their gatherings with grace? 
Would you anoint them and use them? May the Spirit of Christ go with them in their conversation with their loved ones so that one of those loved ones, if not many of them, come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Today, Father, may you bless them and keep them. May you make your face shine down upon them. May you be gracious to them. Turn your countenance their direction and give them peace. In Jesus' name.